0: Hi, everyone. On today's episode of EDS at Union Now, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas speaks with the Reverend Dan Scheid of St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Flint, Michigan. They are speaking as part of a semester-long conversation that EDS at Union will be having this spring 2019 on environmental justice issues, beginning with a common read of Anna Clark's new book, The Poison City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy. If you enjoy today's episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Share the show with your friends and let us know what you think by leaving a review. And with that, here is Dean Douglas. Enjoy the show.
1: I welcome you all to our continuing conversations at EDS at Union on fostering and building a just earth. Today, we're happy to be joined by Father Dan Scheid from St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Flint, Michigan. We will be talking with Father Scheid on that which has seemed to have left the national conversation, uh, but has remained a crisis for those people in the city of Flint, Michigan, and that is the water crisis. Uh, We at EDS and Union will be engaging in uh, conversations about the water crisis throughout this semester and environmental justice. And so we are pleased to have someone who is there in Flint directly impacted and doing work in relationship to Flint and who can bring us up to date on some of the things that are going on in Flint, Michigan. So I thank you, Father Scheid, for joining us on this afternoon. Thank you for the invitation. I look forward to speaking with you. Let let us begin by asking you about your congregation there in uh, Flint, Michigan Uh, first, Who's in your congregation? What's what's the demographic of your congregation? Where is your church located in Flint, Michigan, particularly as it relates to the areas of Flint, and we'll talk more about this, but that were directly, most directly impacted by the water crisis?
0: Certainly, St. Paul's is located uh, in downtown Flint. Parish has been in existence since 1840. And the, the church building has been on the corner of Saginaw Street and Third Street since 1872. I like to think of us now as at the intersection of the developers and the dispossessed. Hmm. Um, Flint uh, was the, the headquarters of General Motors at its heyday. It had over 200,000 people. Flint was, in, uh, for a time in the 1960s, uh, per capita, the most prosperous city in the country, um, because there were there were solid manufacturing jobs, and the the gap between um, labor and the bosses, the income gap was was much less than it than it is now in in most industries. The congregation uh, in many ways followed the um, the fate of flint. Uh, when 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 Flint was booming, the congregation was booming. Um, Many General Motors executives uh, were members of the congregation. We're we're fortunate that many of them uh, endowed the congregation. Um, Our size and our our economic scope right now, we would not be able to do what we're doing without uh, those monies that were entrusted to us. Uh, Congregation its on the smaller side, maybe maybe average for the Episcopal Church, uh, active membership of around 150. Uh, half of whom show up on any given Sunday. Uh, racially, we are uh, around 65 white, 35 black, um, more prosperous than not, um, uh, but uh, all economic ranges from, uh, from, you know, folk who are living on the street on up to folk who are comfortable. Um, we, we no longer have auto executives among our membership.
1: So... I understand that you've been there at that congregation for about four years, and so which is almost in the middle of water crises. So how did you become aware of the water crisis taking place in Flint?
0: well, as uh, as I was um, investigating and answering the call to uh, to to move to Flint to be the rector of St. Paul's, um, this was after the water source was switched from, from the Detroit system to the Flint River. So there was already news reports of, of um, residents complaining of, of, of discolored, ill-smelling water, you know, rashes, hair falling out, things like that. Um, not long after we moved here, um, there was continued reports of TTHM, of E. coli, of various issues with the water. Um, the headline in the local paper, uh, the water was found to be corrosive of, of parts and machinery in the one General Motors plant that was on uh, the Flint River system, and, and you know, the plant was then switched back to the, uh, to the Detroit system. This was no uh, secret. Uh, this was front page headline. So we moved right in the middle of it, um, but uh, just a few months before um, the issue of lead was definitively uh, discovered and, uh, you know, a, a state of emergency um, declared.
1: So uh, were any members of your congregation directly impacted uh, by the crisis? Uh,
0: certainly. Uh, I would say around 25% of our members live within the city of Flint. The rest come in from surrounding areas. Um, I like to say that, that with, with a few exceptions, uh, the parish church itself and, and our membership um, in the city were perhaps more inconvenienced than devastated. Um, given our, the, the resources that we have, um, most of us were able to, to adapt um, without too much difficulty um, in comparison to, to much poorer congregations um, in other parts of town and much poorer neighborhoods. Um, that said, we did put a, a filtration system in our, uh, in our um, parish facilities. We have a, uh, a, an every Tuesday lunch, a soup kitchen where we, we feed hungry people. It was really important for the water uh, in the church itself to be trustworthy. So uh, we were blessed to have the resources to be able to um, adapt and make that adjustment.
1: Liz, I like this distinction that you make between being devastated and, and being inconvenienced. Mm-hmm. And we know in Flint, even as sort of a smaller city, so to speak, as it is, that we see that there were distinct differences, uh, if you will, in the way in which certain areas, certain neighborhoods, certain peoples uh, were impacted. For some, it was devastating and devastated their families uh, in terms of health, let alone issues of access to mm-hmm. fresh water and the ability to buy fresh water. And then others, it was an inconvenience. And and for some, they didn't even recognize or realize uh, that there was a water crisis. Uh, and so how... Uh, what we discover is that there's this disparity uh, in terms of class and, of course, race uh, really dictates in many ways people's income levels. Uh, so how, how did you see this play out and how has this occurred so distinctly and uh, definitively in Flint?
0: Well, you know, it absolutely is, is an issue of race uh, and um, certainly of class. Um, Flint is roughly 60% African-American, 40% white, um, you know, uh, some uh, Latino, some Native-born uh, folk and other, but it is a majority black city. It's also uh, a majority poor city. We are the, the poorest large city per capita in the country, uh, over 40% below the poverty level. Um, and, and poverty is a is a black and a white uh, issue in Flint, for sure. So neighborhoods, both predominantly black and predominantly white, that were poor, that are poor, um, really felt the brunt of the devastation, the congregations in those neighborhoods and the congregants themselves. Uh, the other Episcopal church in Flint, St. Andrews, over on the east side, uh, which really has more uh, uh, white poverty than black. Um, Devastated uh, many people who use that congregation walk so issues of even carrying Bottled water to wherever they were uh, a huge issue because of lack of transportation uh, So there are so many things that are that are um, intertwined uh here um, But it certainly has to do with what simply I think the ability to to adapt the ability to react and, and of course, you know, the, the scandal that had ever happened in the first place. Um, Flint was vulnerable in that regard um, because of our uh, because of our poverty and because of our issues of race.
1: Yeah. So what was it that caused you to become engaged? What was the sort of crisis or breaking point for you?
0: Well, you know, we, uh, at my home, uh, which, is, which is in the town and, and in one of the more um, stable, um, prosperous neighborhoods, uh, we did not have the issues with, with discolored, foul-smelling water, you know, you know. Lead, of course, is, is uh, you know, tasteless and odorless, so uh, we didn't know of, of those issues for some time. It took me a little time, you know, honestly, to, to become more engaged. You know, moving to a new city, moving to a new congregation, um, you know, one as a, as, a, as a clergy person doesn't always know how much latitude one has to, to engage in the community. I was certainly brought to Flint um, because I have a, a desire to be active in the community. But it took some time for me to, to catch up with those who in the city who were most acutely affected and who were protesting most loudly. You know, in in Flint's case in particular, you know, many folk were dismissed as being as being crazy, as being rabble rousers. You know, sure, you're bringing jugs of discolored water to City Hall, but but the science tells us that it's good. So who are you going to believe, you crazy person, your own eyes or or you know what uh, what you're being told by government institutions? So it, it took me some time, but I think um, certainly once the once the issue of lead. Um, became prominent then almost everybody jumped on the bandwagon and I will you know I will certainly confess to not having been as active and as engaged before um, that point uh, as I was afterward it's it's very easy to become engaged when everyone is outraged it takes a lot more courage um, and determination uh, to become engaged at the at the leading edge of a scandal
1: yeah, thanks. I appreciate you saying that. And uh, because so often we find that that's the case. And and I, I will return to this in a minute, particularly in relationship to the church and most particularly the church that we share in our uh members of the Episcopal Church, but I want to return just for a moment to this issue of how long it took people to respond and for this to really become a part of the national conversation. One of the things, as you know, we are reading here at EDS, at Union, Anna Clark's book, The Poison City, mm-hmm. and who, uh, for our listening audience, was a journalist covering this story and doing research on this story. And so she has helped us to understand the in this book the complexity of the issues that played themselves out through the water crisis and, and how many respects the water crisis was Predictable in terms of the impact that it had on the city of Flint, in terms of the impact and disproportionate impact that it had on certain members of the city of Flint. And again, just as you have said, Father Scheid, yes, it has to do with poverty. And of course, she's made very clear, and of course, we understand poverty, we understand it as a racialized phenomenon. All people are. of all colors are poor and find themselves living under the poverty line, but we see that that disproportionately impacts people mm-hmm. of color and particularly children of color. Mm-hmm. So what we also see is g- that when those persons who were most marginalized, either by being poor or of color or of both, were raising their voices on uh, saying that something's wrong with our water, that nobody listened. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or took them seriously and that it was only when a couple of white persons began and white families and uh, white mothers uh, in particular began to raise their voices that this began to get some kind of national attention. We also know that black churches were... Engaged in these issues of protest, tell me how that has played itself out, and what are your responses to that?
0: Oh, Flint is a complicated city. Um, and that's such a complex question. Um, you know, certainly, um, you're right. The uh, you know the, the the switch to you know the Flint River was in in you know. Early 2014, and the the lead wasn't discovered uh, until the you know the autumn of 2015. So a year and a half went by. Uh, and it really wasn't until the lead became an issue that that there was the national outcry, right? Yeah. So for so long before that, there were the issues of, of of people complaining, people protesting, and and largely not being listened to. You know, certainly the, the mayoral election in November of 2015 mm-hmm. um, turned on the issue of water, really, um, and I think largely turned on the issue of race, race, and the and the response to it. Where the wards of the city that are, you know, predominantly black voted for now Mayor Weaver, an African-American woman, wards in the city that were predominantly white uh, voted for, you know, then the incumbent Dane Walling, a white man. Um, I I think there was a, you know, a strong sense of wanting to, to, you know, sweep issues under the rug. Um, of, of, you know, minimizing the the import and the impact on people, especially, you know, poor people, people of color. Um, You know, Flint was at that time beginning to rebound from economic devastation and and was beginning to redevelop, at least in downtown. And and this was a tremendous setback. And and when you're a developer um, and you're looking to attract um, business and population, the last thing you want uh, is a is a national water crisis. So there was no impetus um, on the part of, of the powers that be to listen to folk who were complaining. Um, and, you know, and certainly the you know the women who Anna Clark raises in her book, uh, you know the two the two mothers who who really were at the forefront of, of that phase of it. Their voices began to be heard, um, but but even you know their efforts were minimized. You know, really, until, you know, it was the work of, of Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha um, mm-hmm. her, you know, study showing the increase in lead levels of, of children in Flint that, you know, really got you know, everyone to sit up and listen. But before and even that, initially, she was ignored. And even initially, she was ignored, absolutely, um, and, uh, you know, and, and threatened. Um, and, and minimized, um, and I don't know if your students have had a chance if any have picked up her book as well. Um, it's really a nice companion to, to Anna Clark's book. Um, they tell, you know, much of the same story but from different perspectives and, and um, uh, different levels of interest.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how, as Anna Clark points out, but as we know, the ways in which water brings us all together But that water that brings us all together, for which we are all relying upon, good, clean water, that it also uh, shows how we are so far apart. Uh, uh, And so the water that brings us together is also the water that divides. Uh, Let me ask you what, because we know what we know of Flint, And of Flint's history and its long history of discriminatory housing and all of this, no different than the rest of the country in terms of redlining, but the history of redlining that indeed uh, allowed for the kind of uh, discrimination that allowed for the disproportionate impact in some respects of the water crisis because of blighted neighborhoods, etc., With that said, so we know how it divided us. Mm -hmm. uh, How have you seen ways in which that water that divided has brought the community together?
0: Water tends to ebb and flow, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) It looks for, it looks for, uh, you know, kind of a low level place and, and it continues to ebb and flow in Flint. There's no question that, that, You know, at the at the height of the national awareness of the water crisis, there was a a a reasonable degree of um, unity and shared purpose, at least on the surface. Um, Celebrities were coming to town. There was a sense of this is really an opportunity for for Flint to shine, right? To be an example to the rest of the country. Uh, Alas, we have not. um, We have not continued in that spirit. There is um there continues to be great division in our city on the what is the appropriate response. Um, there is division in the city um, in terms of the repairing the infrastructure and the not only the mechanics but the economics of that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, city government, city council is divided. Uh, Many churches remain involved, but other churches really have been on the sidelines. Uh, development continues in uh, in prosperous places and is ignored in others. Um, I would say, in in large part, um, we're not much farther along in terms of in terms of a common purpose, in terms of waters' ability to bring us together as as we could be. Those waters have have parted. Um, there are there are different branches of that river now and uh, And we remain a city that that is divided and that is struggling um, Some folk I talked to um, suggest that there's some intentionality about that because if uh, if, if activists are, are, are Kept apart if uh, you know if, if factions begin um, among groups who who had common cause Um, that lessens their ability to affect systemic change. And -hmm. and change remains only on the surface. And and I fear that's where we are in large part in Flint right now.
1: So uh, as you mentioned, churches' involvement or lack thereof in some cases – uh, Where was the Episcopal Church in this crisis and where they are now? Not only you said that your church, there are two, I guess, Episcopal churches Mm -hmm. in uh, Flint. and In fact, almost reflective of, in some respects, your church uh, is a little more prosperous in a different part of town. Uh, than St. Andrew's Parish is more impacted by the water crisis uh, than your church and that neighborhood. So where have been not simply the individual uh, Episcopal church responses, but the institutional church? I was struck in reading Anna Clark's book by there was the involvement of the coalition of churches and that seemed to be black church uh, of Baptists or whatever, I was struck by the absence of uh, the Episcopal Church, at least in the way in which she told the story. And so how accurate is that? Where was the Episcopal Church as an institution? Uh, what, how did it engage or not?
0: Uh, very good question. Uh, the, the concerned pastors for social action Um, almost entirely Coalition of Black Churches for for at least 40 years. Um, I began caucusing with those pastors, you know, around the time that the water crisis really came to a head. It was was important, I I felt, for for me uh, personally, professionally, vocationally, and also for the parish to have a connection. That organization, Concerned Pastors, does remain almost entirely a black church, uh, a a black church uh, group, a black church organization. Uh, So the Episcopal Church did not have a strong interdenominational presence with other churches, um, black churches or white churches for that matter in town. We had our, we really had our own response. And and I think in many ways, um, parishes across denominations um, had some combination of their own response and doing things in partnership with others. Um, I, I think there was room for both. Our, the Episcopal Church response, while we didn't work across denominations with other churches much, we do have a presence in Flint, um, two parishes and, and two nonprofit organizations at that time, two nonprofit organizations that we were responsible for. So the Episcopal Church's response largely was was funneled through. Ah, uh, funnel through St. Paul's as as the fiduciary and 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 the the place to receive money, mm-hmm. and then to work with the the other parish and the other two organizations to to meet needs. Uh, those organizations uh, are Christ, uh, were Christ Enrichment Center, a nonprofit, which has since closed for uh, for other reasons, and mm-hmm. Crossover Downtown Outreach Ministry, um, uh, Episcopal, and other um, church-based uh, ministry in downtown Flint. So our, our response at the, at the very beginning was, like almost everyone else, bottled water, bottled water, bottled water, right? Um, we received um, a grant funding from Episcopal Relief and Development, uh, a, a, a couple of grants. Um, the Episcopal Diocese of Eastern Michigan was generous from its um, kind of emergency needs fund. And then we received funding from from parishes, from dioceses, and from individuals around the country. There was a a point early on when we no longer had to rely on purchased or donated water because there were government funds made available for that. So we didn't need to spend our money on that, which was um, being underwritten by um, state and federal government. So when our resources were freed up, we switched from handing out water. We still do, but that, that became less our focus. More of our focus was on um Ways to combat the issue of lead poisoning through nutrition. Both churches and both nonprofit organizations had food and feeding ministries already in place that predated the water crisis. So for us, it was a very easy switch to be able to use grant money from Episcopal Relief Development, from the Diocese of Eastern Michigan, from other donations. Uh, to be able to purchase specifically healthy foods, um, either to give away in a food pantry setting or to serve in a, in a soup kitchen setting. Um, and, and we continue with that response um, to this day. You know, Overall, we received about $160,000 uh, know, from uh, most of that from Episcopal Relief and Development, uh, but a large part from the diocese and, and, and other folks and and we have been spending that money down every month um right now of course fewer donations coming in because it's not uh, it's not on the the, the the national radar screen anymore um we expect to to have that fund exhausted um probably this summer or early autumn and in a way that's that's okay the um The infrastructure is expected to be replaced. The lead service lines are expected to be replaced by this summer. So, in in a sense, that's kind of a nice dovetail. Um, But you know, on the other hand, the the long term effects of lead poisoning, uh, you know, remain um, unseen. The treatment for that. Um, largely beyond the response of almost any church. You really, then you start talking about the educational system, social service system, uh, healthcare system—you know, those sorts of things where the the effects of lead on on developing minds um, have yet to be seen. That's going to be a you know a generation sort of response. So our response was was really localized within Episcopal Church organizations and where we certainly sought common cause with other denominations we did, but but in terms of actual tangible programmatic partnerships, um, you know, we simply had all we could do with the resources that we had.
1: Yes, thank you. I wanna follow up with that a minute before uh, we end with a couple of uh, other questions. And my follow up was that, you know, the Episcopal Church, we are now being uh, guided by our presiding bishop to really become more engaged uh, mm-hmm. with the Jesus movement yep. as we move toward uh, the beloved community of what we mm-hmm. call here at EDS and Union, partner with God in moving toward a just earth. Mm-hmm. So when we think about the Jesus movement, and we think about that in Flint, Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, then in the midst of the crisis, and now could we say beyond, and be commended for the work that your parish uh, has done there uh, in Flint, Michigan. Uh, Would people in Flint, Michigan, we talk about the Jesus movement, would you say that the Episcopal Church, that people would be able to say, yeah, the Episcopal Church, they've had a presence here. Where would Jesus be moving there? And was the Episcopal Church moving with him? Hmm.
0: You know, in terms of the, the water issue itself, um, I would not be so, uh, so bold as to say we were a leading denomination in addressing that. In other issues of justice, um, I think we stand out pretty good. Economic justice, uh, LGBTQ uh, issues, um, I am a visible pastor in, in, in many ways um, and have a supportive congregation. Um, but I would not claim that we were at the forefront uh, in the Flint water crisis. No, and and largely, I think that had to do with it didn't affect us deeply, right? We were inconvenienced, not devastated. So while we could respond um, in a timely and in a generous manner, there was not the urgency um, certainly, that other denominations, other congregations in town, Flint, uh, in, in Flint, felt. Now that being said, you know we were blessed to have uh, Michael Curry in Flint. Uh, the House of Bishops was meeting in Detroit, right. Um, right. And and they took a field trip. Uh, presiding Bishop and, and a number of bishops and their spouses came up, um, met in St. Paul's with the with the mayor. With state senator, and then went to the other sites, went to St. Andrews, went to Christ Richmond Center to, to see how other Episcopal-based organizations were dealing with. So uh, we were fortunate to have the, the interest and the, the, the charism and the excitement that the presiding bishop brings. But no, there, there were other denominations, um, clearly, um, who were much more visible and out front, especially before uh, the issue of lead was discovered, which which made it easy for everyone to get involved. Yeah. There were yeah. other congregations that were simply much more engaged and courageous um, at the very beginning than we were.
1: Let me ask you this: shifting a little bit toward uh, the close of this conversation, if there was, is there one story from Flint and your engagement there? Uh, during this time of crisis and now even in the road to recovery in some respect. Is there a story that stands out for you that sort of encapsulates what this was all about?
0: Oh, to narrow it down to one story, that's, uh, that's tough. You know, More maybe
1: even impacted greatly. Yeah, maybe impacted. just an, an example
0: of, of how at least the little bit of work that we did, uh, I, I would think, um, made a difference. We're we're blessed at St. Paul's to have a, a commercial kitchen, which we use for our own benefit and also for others. Um, our our partnering organization, Crossover Downtown Outreach Ministry, um, has a cooking class. You know, so many folk um, simply do not have. Cooking skills, uh, for for one reason or another. So one response that we did, you know, in terms of healthy food, um, was that that crossover would um, would engage a number of people to sign up for a multi-week class on how to cook. They would meet uh, in our parish hall and in our kitchen uh would have a trained cook show folk how to use various ingredients healthy ingredients right to be able to Mm -hmm. feed themselves and their families and then with the funds that we received we were able to send folk home with a bag of groceries so Mm -hmm. that they could then apply what they learned in our parish kitchen um into their own households so um you know if if there's anything Positive to come out of this water crisis. It could be, you know, a a, a sense of knowing how important it is not only water, but how important food is as well. Right. I mean, we, we can't live without either of them. Um, You know, certainly as, as Eucharistic Christians, we gather around the table, right? As, as people of, of the baptismal covenant, we gather around the font, whatever that looks for font and table is central to who we are. And I think, you know, theologically, liturgically, if we're paying attention, there's a resonance uh, and a, and, and a dissonance um, because you have the, you know, it it took, it, it took scandal for something good to come out of the Flint water crisis. And I suppose it took
1: scandal for Christianity too. Yeah, exactly. This is so- at the heart of our faith is a scandal, the scandal of the cross. And, yeah. and, and I think that certainly speaks to what went on in Flint. Uh, mm-hmm. And it is the scandal of the cross
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in so many respects, even as we speak to the crucifying realities mm-hmm. of uh, the communities that find themselves most devastated mm-hmm. uh, by the crisis. Mm-hmm. We know that the media moved away. Mm -hmm. As you suggested earlier, the celebrities have come and gone, but the crisis in so many respects continues, while it may not be the same urgency in terms of lack of recognition of what's poisoning the children, the children have been poisoned, and indeed, we're going to see the impact of this for at least another generation, Mm -hmm. and and the impact uh, has tentacles because these very children will have difficulties learning in school, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that create other problems. What Now that everyone's gone away, what is it that you want us to know? And uh, what are the ways in which we as a church Mm -hmm. uh, and as people of faith need to continue to be engaged with Flint?
0: Good question. Um, and, and I got that question a lot, especially in the in the, the, the heyday of the impact. You know, people would, you know, call me from all around the country, happy to send a check. What else can we do? And my answer to them was, surely you have issues of injustice in your own communities. Surely um, Christ remains uh, crucified uh, and at the same time, raised in your communities, what is happening in your own where the church um, can really can shine a light and can take a role of leadership. If we're talking about water specifically, there are so many places around this country, not only with, with municipal water mm-hmm. systems, uh, but other all sorts of other pollutions based on agriculture, or mining, or or what have you. You know, water is central. I I think it's largely a a question of folk in their own communities, um, you know, waking up um, and 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 dealing with this in their own area. In terms of you know Flint itself, um, it does remain to be seen, and um, and I think uh, it's going to take time, both for the tangible, but also for the intangible too. Trust has been severely broken, mm-hmm. and as I mentioned earlier, um, you know there's there's significant division in town about now about the right way to to respond and is the response the right way there's there's division and and you know the, the church churches have taken sides right there are mm-hmm. congregations that are allied with one faction or another it's it's hard to be engaged and at the same time to be to be whole in um, discerning when is the right time to, to take a definite stand and, and when is the right time to, to, to listen and to cooperate um, is, is a gift that the church can offer. Um, uh, but also a challenging thing for the church to live into, you know, what can folk around the country do, do for Flint? Um, you know, at this point, continue to um, continue to remember uh, when other water issues in in other parts of the country crop up. You know, remember that 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 we are here. Um, but but you know, truly look for places to to act justly and courageously in your own context, because there is no place um, in this church, there's no place in this country or this world where there's not the need um, for you know for a good and holy response um, by the Jesus
1: movement. Thank you, I think that that is a good place to end. And there's so much more clearly that can be said about the ways in which Flint has shown us, uh, the ways in which water divides, as well as brings us together in the lessons to be learned from the story of water and more that is Flint. I thank you for joining us in this conversation today And thank those who are listening. Thank you.